All right, spiritual jurisprudence lesson four. We're dealing with um, uh, the law here. And we're calling this fourth lesson delivered from the law question mark. We have spent three weeks building a whole bunch of foundational understanding, explaining what law is, what the theory of law is, how everything in the creation, which is everything you and I know, operates by divine law. Once you leave natural creation and what are called the laws of science, you get into the laws of society called civil law. And then you have the laws of the spirit realm, which is what we're constantly studying and developing and our understanding on. And those laws are given to us from the scriptures. There are even laws that affect the demon realm. There are laws that affect how we can cast them out or how they can get into your life. If you violate the laws of God, demons have access by permission into your life. And if we have to cast them out, we have to operate according to the laws of casting out demons and the authority. Uh, A good example of that is that when it comes to children, uh, someone cannot cast demons out of children without the parent's permission. That violates law. Uh, You as a grandparent have zero authority over your grandchildren. And so you need to stop ruining your life trying to save your grandchild's life. You need to just chill out and pray. You can't cast demons out of children without the parent's permission. And I've experienced that as a pastor. I have not been able to get children delivered because the parents were the problem. This is a violation of spiritual law. It's why it won't work. What we want to look at in this lesson is the question of delivered from the law. Uh, We're going to build that. We got a lot to cover, so I'll just jump in and start reading what we've written. Nearly every Christian at some time or another has heard the statement, we're delivered from the law. Or, we're not under the law anymore. And these statements have been made ad nauseum, that means to the point you want to puke, without the least bit of qualification or explanation until the average Christian mindlessly retains them as part of their doctrine. And we've all heard that. You're delivered from the law. In which case, I always pause and say, all right, how does your wife feel if you commit adultery on her? How does the police feel if you shoot your neighbor in the head? That's still law that you're still under. Uh, How would society view, my favorite one to quote is Leviticus 19, how how would society feel if you started prostituting your 10-year-old daughter? That's a Levitical law. Don't prostitute your daughter. Do you think you're really delivered from that? Of course we're not delivered from that. Even Hollywood thinks that's weird. And if Hollywood thinks it's weird, you know it's weird. You don't prostitute your 10-year-old daughter. You don't prostitute anybody. We're not delivered from the law as this blanket statement would imply. We're going to see exactly how we are delivered or free through this lesson. Consequently, this may be one of the greatest modern doctrinal misunderstandings stemming from a few verses taken out of context. These sentiments often mislead believers into thinking they can disregard scriptures, commandments, and even morality and ethics because, after all, we are free from the law. Now, as again, as we've pointed out for several weeks, you're not free from the law of gravity this morning. You're not free from the law of thermodynamics. You're not free from the laws of our civil governments. You're not free from the law of sin and death yet. It still works in your flesh. The fact that your body hasn't been glorified yet lets you know you're still under an Old Testament law which means this body must die. You're also under the law that prophecies must come to pass, and Jesus Christ has not come back yet, so there's a lot of outstanding prophecies that have not come to pass, and that's an Old Testament law. So when folks start making the statement, we're free from the law, you have to be careful listening to them because, number one, ignorance is flaring up, and then you've got to begin to wonder what's the motivation behind such sentiments. We're free from the law. We're free from the law. 
Is it because they don't want any restraint? Is it because they're vagabonds and rebels? Or is it just because they're just doctrinally ignorant? The sentiment that we're free from the law will breed lawlessness and sin and judgment. And that's not going to glorify Jesus Christ. This lesson will aim to shed light on the law's application to the New Testament believer. And of course, anytime we use the word law in these lessons, we're referring to the Mosaic law, the 613 laws of the mitzvah. So review real quick. We have seen there are only 613 laws in the Old Testament called the mitzvah. Note that when a Jewish boy turns 13, he celebrates his bar mitzvah. That's where that comes from. Or the time of becoming fully responsible for keeping the mitzvah. So for the Jewish tradition, this is from the Talmud, which is uh, about... Uh, third or fourth century after Christ, the Talmud was collected, Jewish rabbi or rabbinical teachings. Uh, when a boy turns 13, in their culture, he is viewed as being 100% responsible for all 613 laws. That is, in a sense, their age of accountability. Up until 13, mom and dad are responsible for his behavior. And in some regards, from the research I've done, mom and dad rejoice at the bar mitzvah because now they're not accountable for the boy's behavior. But now that's interesting because they view by 13, the child should know God well enough to keep them himself. Which is also interesting because this sparks in my mind in Luke 12, when it says, and Jesus went to Jerusalem on the Passover and he was 12 years old and was debating and teaching and speaking in the synagogues with the lawyers and the scribes. He's approaching that Jewish cultural age of 13 and he knows the law well enough to confound the lawyers and the scribes which also kind of puts a high standard on your kids. Your children. In America, they're 13 and they still act like they're four because mom and dad are lazy. And they want television and iPads and iPods to babysit and parent them. And I still, let me pass to you for a second, I still think some of you let your kids have way too much iPod attention. We ought to teach our children to try to look up to Jesus as a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old. Now, I know Jesus was the Son of God, but he was not anointed at 12. He was not anointed till he was 30 at the River Jordan when the heavens were once again open since they had been closed since Malachi. So he was a child, but he had been taught the Bible by his father Joseph who took him to the synagogue every Sabbath, as was his custom, and to Jerusalem every Passover. So it, it raises the standard, the bar mitzvah, the age of accountability to the law. Girls celebrate it at the age of 12 because everybody knows women mature so much faster, and surely they do. And my little girls want a baby and mother. They want responsibility in the house, and I see little boys, they want to tear up the house. <laughs> so the Jewish custom is to celebrate a girl's bat mitzvah uh, at 12. Approximately 231 of the 613 mitzvah can be found in the New Testament along with the principles of many more mitzvah. So 231 of the 613 are in the New Testament. Nine out of the ten commandments are in the New Testament. The only commandment that's not in the New Testament is the fourth commandment, which is keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In which case we know the New Testament tells us all days are holy. And the early church took Sunday to begin to recognize their Sabbath because it was the day of the Lord's resurrection. We still maintain that because of church culture, church tradition. But honestly, God does not care. Jesus Christ said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what happens if you get marooned on a desert island and you lose track of time? Is God going to judge you because you're not going to church on Saturday or Sunday? 
I think if you're marooned on a desert island, you're going to church every day saying, oh, God, deliver me. One more coconut and seagull and I'm going to puke. <laughs> I've had my fill of seafood. The New Testament contains 800 commands or 31% more than the Old Testament. It's new and improved. 31% more law under the New Testament. There are 11 specific laws the New Testament applies to the born-again believer, the law of faith, the law of Christ, the law of God, the law of sin and death, the law of liberty, the law of the spirit of life, the law of righteousness, the law of marriage, the law of financial support, the law of spousal obedience, and the royal law of love. We covered those in the last lesson. Nine of the Ten Commandments are taught in the New Testament. The New Testament directly quotes the Old Testament 495 times. That's a typo. should be 695 times. That's a lot more. Direct quotes. The New Testament directly quotes, quoting Scripture, quoting the prophets, quoting Psalms, quoting Moses, 695 times. The New Testament references the Old Testament 4,100 times, and there's only 8,000 verses in the New Testament. So half of the New Testament is referencing the Old Testament. That would almost say that the New Testament is only 50% original, 50% new. Because it's all based on the foundation of the Old Testament. 20 of the 26 New Testament books quote the Old Testament. Only five books of the Old Testament are not quoted in the New Testament. And there are 39 Old Testament books. So think about that. 34 books of the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are quoted directly 245 times. The Pentateuch is the most legalistic part of the Old Testament. And it's quoted 245 times. So now, what we need to do in moving forward in building upon our foundation of spiritual jurisprudence, we see that concerning this defining the law, the law was given to teach Israel what God expected from them in terms of worship, morality, and civil governance. If you know what the heart behind the law is, you'll never get legalistic with it. And the key to any New Testament teaching, any New Testament commandment, any Old Testament teaching, any Old Testament commandment is to ask, what is the heart behind this? Why did God say this? What's he trying to prevent? What's he trying to accomplish? What, what doesn't he like? What's the picture he's trying to paint with these laws? I use the example of the speed limit. What's the purpose of a speed limit? To get everybody safely operating at a similar speed on a highway that has curves that have geometries designed for that speed on road conditions, asphalts and pavements, and concrete that is designed for rubber friction at those speeds. You see the, the off-ramp and the, the figure fours, they say, you know, ramps limit 35 miles an hour. That has everything to do with physics and your car and friction and the angle of the curvature on that ramp. It's all designed to operate according to laws. If you take that ramp too fast, you'll go off into the, you know, the retention pond or go off into the shopping center. If you understand the purpose behind the laws, you won't be legalistic. You'll know when you're breaking it on one side or the other. You'll even know when it's acceptable to break it. Thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not kill. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But if you break into my house, I'm breaking a commandment. And I won't feel bad about it. And when they interview me, and they say, Reverend McMichael, someone broke into your home and you shot them 17 times. Do you feel anything? I feel soreness in my shoulder from the recoil. And I'm sorry their mother didn't raise them better. And I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to win them to Christ before I sent them to hell. That's all I feel. 
Thou shalt not kill, but the Bible also tells me you shall provide safety for your family. If we, if we don't understand the heart behind the law, we'll take a scripture like turn the other cheek and we'll become trampled upon, which is not the purpose of that scripture. I like to make the extreme example. Turn the other cheek. If they smite me, I'm supposed to give you the other cheek. So you rape one daughter, I'm supposed to give you my other daughter? No, that's not the heart behind that scripture. And so pagans want to quote our scripture to us and try to bind us down to the word of the God they don't even believe in. Always ask the question, what's the heart behind this law? What's the heart behind this commandment? Concerning morality, the law taught Israel what holiness looked like, but the law never had the power to justify Israel by making them righteous before God. So the law, concerning the moral law, it was to teach Israel what holiness and morality look like. The, the civil laws of the mitzvah were to teach Israel how to govern their people in their villages and in their cities and in their tribal territory, but it was never designed to make them righteous. And then you had the ceremonial aspect of the law, and it was designed to teach you how to worship God and what to do when you broke the other laws, but it never had the power to make you righteous. That is justified in right standing with God. In short, the law did not have the ability to take away sin. It only atoned for, covered over for a temporary season. It was only intended to reveal what sin looked like. This is critical. This is a critical crux to our understanding of the law. The law was never intended to take away sin. The law never could take away sin. Every year you had to go back for the Day of Atonement to cover for the past year's sin. You knew what sin was because of the law, and you knew what sacrifices to offer because of the law, but it never did away with any of it. We know that now Jesus Christ has come. There's no more atoning for sin. It's been atoned for. Now we confess, we apply the blood by faith, and we're washed and we move forward. We don't have to keep sacrificing and keep sacrificing and keep sacrificing. The Bible calls that the works of the law. All right, Romans 10.5, New Living Translation says, For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. That's quoting Leviticus 18.5 in the New English Translation, and I pick the versions that bring out the heart of this verse the best. So you must keep my statutes and my regulations. Anyone who does so will live by keeping them. So notice, if you're going to be right with God, you have to flawlessly keep these every day of your life, which is an impossibility, which was meant to point towards Jesus Christ because the people would say, Lord, we want to serve you, but holy Toledo or holy Benjamin, whatever, you know, they didn't have a Toledo. <laughs> holy Issachar, how are we going to do this? There's got to be a better way. And it was to point them towards their coming Messiah who would make an atonement for all of their sin. Right standing with God through the law was an exhausting task of maintaining all 613 commandments. If an Israelite broke a moral law, they had to obey a ceremonial law in order to atone for their sin. This pattern, though, and principle for redemption is the basis for the new covenant. The only way out of disobedience is through obedience. So I think that's a neat spiritual law that's built into the law, the Old Testament law. If you broke a moral law or a civil government's law, you had to then atone for it by obeying another law. Because that's the only way we fix anything even in the New Testament. If we sin, the only way to get out of sin is to obey. 
The only way to fix disobedience is through obedience. You can't fix disobedience with further disobedience. We say it in American parlance, two wrongs don't make a right. You have to obey to get out of sin. Moses and the prophets pointed towards the coming righteousness that was made available through the long-promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Luke 24 shows us this. It says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus said that commonly many times. He said, Go study Moses and the prophets, for it is they that speak of me, or I am he that they testify of. So even the law... Moses, the prophets, they were pointing towards Jesus. If by no other means but to say, Lord, I want to please you, but there's got to be a better way. I want to serve you, but I can't even remember all 613 laws, and I can't even afford the turtle doves, and and Lord, have mercy on me. There's got to be a better way. And that's the heart of faith that began to justify people. Even as Abraham was justified through righteousness 430 years before the Ten Commandments were ever delivered. Because we understand now that righteousness comes by faith. Believing God, not work, 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 work. Acts 28, 23. And when they had appointed him, Paul, a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses. Notice he could use the 613 commandments to preach Jesus. I think that's such a powerful statement that gets so overlooked by the hyper-grace crowd that all they want is spouses. We're free from the law. We're free from the law. Paul didn't have anything else to preach Jesus with. And yet, would you argue there was any greater apostle than Paul? So everything he did, he did based from the law and the prophets, which the modern heretic says we're totally should ignore. You're going to go tell Paul that, the apostle of grace, that he shouldn't have been, he he was totally dead wrong for everything he did, winning all those churches and the whole of Europe through the 613 commandments, preaching Christ unto them, persuading them concerning Jesus. Notice he was successful. He didn't, didn't say he debated, didn't say he argued, he said he persuaded them. He convinced them to move from one place in their faith to another by taking the law and showing them Christ. And out of the prophets from morning till evening. Nah, we don't do that in America either. The modern secret church has a 30-minute time cap. The modern secret church is a lot like Starbucks or McDonald's. The second you place your order, the timer kicks in, and they're tracking how long you have to wait through the drive through The modern secret church is so, so precise and so sterile in its delivery of the kingdom that there's a clock that tells the worship leader when to get done. And there's a clock that tells the announcer when to be done with the announcements. And then the preacher has a a certain time limit. And then we have to be done. We have to click, rotate the service, clean the airplane, and bring the next crew on for the fifth service of the morning. It's like Jiffy Lube. Oil change in about an hour. And yet Paul, in preaching the gospel from morning or evening till morning, If you're in the Middle East, that could be 12 hours. And they were hungry enough to listen to it. And some of you get bored in 20 minutes of Sunday school. Shame on you. Any strict adherent of the law would have longed for a better way. 
Fortunately, David prophesied about the coming righteousness of God acquired by faith and not by the law. Now, we're building this somewhere, so please just keep in mind, we're asking the question, delivered from the law? And if so, how? Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, uh, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This was an impossibility under the Old Testament, to not have your sin imputed to you. It could be covered through turtle doves and goats and heifers, but it could not be forgotten. He was prophesying about the coming righteousness that would be done once and for all through Jesus Christ. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul was used by God to explain righteousness by faith as opposed to the righteousness by the works of the law. Paul used the Old Testament to build the New Testament doctrine of justification or righteousness by faith. Now, again, Paul was writing the New Testament that we now have, but in his day, his letters were not esteemed like we esteem them today. He was building doctrine that we teach now, but he was building doctrine with the parts and pieces of the Old Testament. That would explain why the Old Testament is referenced 4,100 times and directly quoted 695 times because you always build upon the old. And so Paul built the doctrine of justification by faith. Now again, justification and righteousness is, is synonymous. When you are the righteousness of God, you've been justified. And when you've been justified by faith, you've been made the righteousness of God. In fact, the word justified we see here in this curriculum means to be made righteous and be brought up to God's standard. You can't do that just through works. You have to do that through faith. That's why every Jew today will still go to hell because they've not received salvation by faith in Christ. That upsets a lot of Christians. That upsets a lot of Jews. You mean I'm, I'm God's chosen people, but I'm going to hell? Who did Jesus Christ rebuke everywhere he went? Jews. Who tried to kill Paul everywhere he went? Jews. Why? Because they resisted their salvation. They wanted to keep the works of the law. Paul used the Old Testament to build the New Testament doctrine of justification or righteousness by faith. Justified is the Greek word uh, dikaiu, meaning to render or pronounce one righteous. The other definition means to bring something up to God's standard, which is what we are able to accomplish through faith in Christ. When we get born again, God brings us to his standard. You can never work yourself up to God's standard because he is God and we're finite. The foolishness of the law, the ignorance of this is to think you can ever get good enough to be up to God's standard. It's never going to happen. Only by faith can he make you that. Thankfully, excuse me, these terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So let's look at a couple verses here. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall there be no flesh, uh, that shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what is the purpose of the law here? Just so people can know what sin looks like. It's never meant to make you righteous. It's meant to make you live holy. The law brings knowledge. It does not bring righteousness. It brings knowledge. Galatians 3.11, but that no man is justified by the law in, in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And there again, we're not justified. We cannot be made righteous by the law. We're, we're, we're laying this doctrinal foundation of how are we delivered from the law because we know, we've proven it enough times around here, you're not free uh, to worship demons. You're not free to worship Hindu gods. You have to keep the first commandment. 
You're not free to murder. You have to keep one of the moral commandments. You're not free to fellowship with sorcerers. You've got to keep the Levitical commandments. And yet, we're free from the law in some regard, and we have to have an understanding of how it is and why it's not. So hopefully you're keeping your mind open and not just zoning out as an American on a Sunday morning not being able to hold your iPhone right now. Amen. Galatians 3, 6, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Way before the law, Abraham was considered righteous. And Romans 4, 3 and verse 5, for what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But to him that worketh not, but him, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So to him that worketh not. We keep the laws, but it's not a work. If we have 1,050 New Testament commands that are distilled down to 800 unique singular commands, we have to keep all of those. But it's not in an endeavor to go to heaven. We keep the commands because we love God. We keep the commands because we're Christians. We keep the commands because that's what we do. We keep the commands because we love God. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say, I love you, and therefore you don't have to do anything I ever ask of you. In fact, why would I even ask anything of you if I love you? That's the mindset of the hyper-grace heretic who says you're free from the laws. If Jesus loved us and we're free from laws, why would he give us so many? And then tell me I'm free from them. Do you think Jesus is a schizo like a lot of modern Christians? Split personality? You're free from the laws. Even though I said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Really, if I loved you more, I just wouldn't have given you any. I treat you like an American parent and just let you have the rule of the roost. Just give you anything you want. I would obey you. You know what? That sounds like a popular gospel that makes TBN famous. That God is your sugar daddy to command. And we don't have to keep the commandments. He's to keep ours. That is how so many stiff-necked New Testament American Christians live. I don't have to keep God's commands. He has to keep mine. God, where are you? I've come to church. Give me my blessing. I got to get my blessing on. All right, you pile of clay. I, I used to do pottery in uh, high school. I did a little bit in college. And I was never good at the wheel. I was better at sculpting. And the wheel, you throw that lump on the wheel and you spin it and you get the water on there and you got to get your elbow into your leg to kind of lean into it. You start to bring this pot up and, and uh, if you don't get it centered, it wobbles. And the Bible used the analogy of the potter and the clay. And uh, he says, you know, who are we to ask why we were made? It's the potter. And then there's that famous song, I yield myself to the potter's hand. But we did this a lot. When the pot wasn't going right, you just stopped everything and you just squished it back. Fine, I'll start over. Which is what God did several times in the Old Testament which is actually what he's going to do again in the future. He will have had all he could have with the clay called humanity. We lay off our clay. We take on a glorified body and God squishes everything else. Because if you don't realize it, he doesn't need us. There's no aspect of his divine nature that needs us. He didn't even make us to glorify him. He is self-glorifying. It's, it's a, it's a pseudo-heresy to say he made us because he needs glory. He doesn't need anything. He made us because it just made him happy to make us. It pleased him. And whether we glorify him or not, it doesn't hurt him a bit. He's a self-sufficient one. And we just exist on mercy. 
because if he wants to, he'll just t- stop the wheel of your life and just, I'll start over and I'll use somebody else and I'll raise them up and I'll form them a vessel chosen unto me. Amen. When you make pots on a wheel, you have to keep the clay wet. If it starts to get dry, it's useless. When you and I get a little too dry, a little too hard, it really becomes hard for God to use us. He may just set us aside, get a nice soft lump, start over again. Amen. That little side note was brought to you by our sponsors. (laughs) Uh, Flawlessly performing the works of the law would never remove the stain of sin. Every year they'd have to go to the high priest and he'd have to atone for the whole nation. It was and is futile to try to obtain right standing with God by keeping his law. Now, under the New Testament, right standing with God is acquired by faith in Jesus Christ, not by strictly maintaining 613 commands. Romans 3, 21 says, But now is the righteousness of God without the law. Notice, without the law. It's manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets prophesied that it was coming. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all of them that believe, for there is no difference. Romans 4, 6 says, God imputeth righteousness without works. Again, we're going somewhere with all this concerning the law. Plus, this is helping some of your doctrine. Romans chapter 9, verse 31 says, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ. So the law was never meant to make anybody righteous. It was to make people aware of the standards of God. It was to allow people to live in peace. And it was to point towards the coming Messiah. This is well understood. This is established doctrine. And yet the law contains things that we still do in the New Testament. Don't kill, don't murder. My, my other favorite Leviticus 19 is don't trip blind people. <laughs> Which I always think, why, Lord, did you have to tell Israel, thou shalt not put a stumbling block in front of the blind? Because evidently the Jews enjoyed doing that kind of thing. You know, he didn't say thou shalt not kick a goat off a cliff. Because apparently they didn't do that. They valued goats, but not blind people. Do you think you're free as a New Testament Christian to go and hang out at a blind conference somewhere and just trip people? Just, just go into a conference for blind people and just throw out like marbles or bowling balls or just any tripping implement. You can't do that. That would be sin. So though the law in many of its regards was completed in Christ, we're still bound to the obedience of morality and even certain forms of governments which I think is a very simple concept to understand. Did you know there's Old Testament laws in the midst of about how you treat foreigners? How you treat strangers? There's laws on how you treat your neighbor. Leviticus 19 says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Anybody ever heard that one before? Quoted by Jesus Christ. Also quoted in the epistles. You're not free to break that law. And it is one of the 613 mitzvah. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how we are delivered from the law. Here's what we wanted to get to, but I had to build all of that. Remember, the law is divided into three categories, ceremonial, moral, and civil government. Keeping the law meant maintaining the works of the law. 
This was the only way to stay right before God, and it was exhausting. Sacrifices had to be done perfectly according to the law. You couldn't just bring a dog or a cat as a sacrifice. There was a prescription. There was only certain animals accepted. The city and village governments had to be administered flawlessly according to the law. Human interaction had to be carried out precisely according to the law. All of this was in an attempt to be right before God. This was an exhausting and never-ending means to righteousness. However, this mode of justification changed at Calvary. That's what we've just spent the last three pages proving. So then, with this understanding, we can interpret the following verses more accurately. And verse, but also verses, because there's a couple. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In an attempt to be right with God, Christ is the end of it. To everyone that believeth. That's one of your famous verses used to say we're free from the law. Christ is the end of the law. But you still can't go shoot up a school. You still can't go have sex with farm animals. We're not free from that, but Christ is the end of the law for right standing with God. Concerning the search and acquisition for right standing or justification with God, Jesus is the end of the law. We are free from the burden of infallibly keeping the law's ceremonies, morals, and civil rules in order to be right with God. Now we trust God and believe on Jesus Christ. This by no means implies we are now free to lie, steal, fornicate, worship devils, or communicate with the dead. Anybody love a politician that just lies to you? Neither does God. Quit voting for them. And yet, if we follow the logic of we're totally free from the law... We have to wink and not be irritated when people lie to us. Does God want you to teach your children to be liars or permit them to be liars? No. The Ten Commandments make some really impressive child parenting skills. Romans 2 says the Ten Commandments are in the heart of even heathen. Even heathen know you don't take another man's wife. Even heathen know you can't go kill somebody. Even heathen know it's wrong to lie. Even heathen know you don't go steal. The Ten Commandments are written in the hearts of pagans living in the bush. But the modern preacher and the heresy says we're free. I don't, I just, it's, it's absolute lunacy. It's like denying gravity exists. All these actions strictly forbidden under the law of Moses, uh, all these actions are strictly forbidden under the law of Moses and we are still under the law to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21, Paul says, the, Paul the Apostle of Grace, I am under the law to Christ. That's what he said. Romans 7.6, but now we are delivered, released from the law. See there, we're, we're, we're free. That being dead wherein we were held, we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Now you read the first five verses, Paul uses the allegory of being married and the woman, as long as her husband is alive, is bound to the husband. And that if she's to marry somebody else, she'll live as an adulterer. But if the husband dies, she's released to be remarried. Paul uses all that as an allegory to say, and now you are dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be remarried to another, even Jesus Christ. So he's using it as an allegory to say you are free now from having to try to achieve righteousness through works, 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 works. Now you still serve Serve is works, 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 but you serve Jesus Christ. You're still under a covenant, which still has a commitment, which still has a responsibility, which still requires laws, 
You just don't use the law to become righteous. You're righteous by faith, but you still have the same rules applied to you in that you have to keep your end of the bargain. You have to still serve, and God dictates how you serve him. It's still a covenant. It's just now you're righteous through faith. Just as a widow is freed from her marriage covenant at the death of her husband, we are released from the old covenant and law by the death of Christ's body. The widow is free to remarry, and we are free to be joined to Christ and serve in newness of spirit. We, being dead to the law, are free to serve Christ. We don't serve the law. We serve Jesus Christ by keeping his laws. But there's a catch. We're still serving. Free to serve. Serve. When you serve, there are commandments to obey. Service requires rules and regulations. A lot of Christians try to be hippies in the kingdom. You know, hippies, you know, they they fornicate, they do drugs, they hop in a van, and they just, uh, the most law they want to obey is the speed limit, uh, the price of a product, and where they have to pay to park their hippie bus. They don't want any other laws. They want to live off the grid. Lawless people want to live off the grid because they don't, you're cramping my style. No, you're a rebel. Just go live in space. There aren't many laws up there, but then again, you won't live either. God calls us to be servants under the new covenant. We are not servants of the letter of the law or of the old covenant, but notice we are still servants and under a covenant with 800 commandments, 230 of one which came from the Old Testament. The letter kills by activating sin. The letter kills by imputing sin. And the letter kills by producing a suffocating yoke of an impossible burden. The letter kills, but so does sin. Without the law, we cannot know what sin looks like in order to abstain from it. So again, there's a, there's a bound here. There's a, there's a boundary. There's a, a tension. We're, we're free from the law in these regards, but we're bound to the law at the same time. The letter killeth. And, and the Bible explains in the New Testament how the letter kills, but the New Testament also says sin killeth. But how do you know what sin is? Paul said, I had not known sin except the law said. And ignorance of the law and ignorance of sin doesn't exempt you from its ramifications. Lord, why does my life stink? Why does my life suffer? He'll show you, and you'll find out you've been breaking the laws of God the whole time. You change those laws, your life gets a lot better. Ephesians says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that's the part taken out of context. Jesus Christ has abolished in his flesh the law. Okay, but what's the purpose? To make two people into one, to make neither Jew nor Gentile, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by uh, by it having put to death the enmity. Famous verse, Ephesians, he is our peace, who's broken down the middle wall of partition in between us. Now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but the purpose here is not that he's done away with the law because we still can't rob, we still can't commit adultery, we still can't commit bestiality, we can't perjure ourselves. We go to jail for most of this stuff. What's the purpose of abolishing the law here? What's the, what's the heart of the sentence? To eliminate the distinction between Jew and Gentile, which is very evident from the verse. The subject here is the unification of Jew and Gentile, which Christ accomplished on the cross, making one body in him. The old covenant was the delineator and barrier providing, or excuse me, producing a dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile. And if you wanted to become a proselyte Jew, you had to keep all the commandments. That's what brought you into the 
company of faith called the Jewish people. The law was given to distinguish the Jews from the rest of the world. The Old Testament says that many times. Jesus abolished the barrier, the law, with its ordinances, which kept people from coming to him. Now anyone can come to him by grace through faith. So how are we delivered from the law? We don't use it anymore to try to be right with God. We are right with God through Jesus Christ. Except that so much of those 613 commandments are still applicable today. They still benefit your life today. And you have to rightly divide the word of truth to understand how this thing sorts out. It is a fallacy to say we're delivered from the law without qualifying that statement or further explaining it, as we've proven in three, uh, three lessons so far. But look at this. What the New Testament says about the law. Here's our last little section. If we're totally free from the law, you should find the New Testament putting down the law, condescending the law, mocking the law. You should see the New Testament telling us to flee, flee, flee commandments. But again, it gives us 800 commandments, a quarter of which come from the Old Testament. Actually, a third of which come from the Old Testament. So there's more to this and we're just free. He's the end of the law. We have to rightly divide the heart of God on this. We will see from the following points that the New Testament does not diminish the Old Testament or the law. It doesn't talk down about it. Rather, it says the law is good if one knows how to use it lawfully. So here's some bullet points. Here's what the New Testament says about the law. Instruction in the law teaches what is more excellent. I, I think it's a good thing to teach our children the Old Testament. We're not going to have a bar mitzvah. We're not going to wear yarmulkes or prayer shawls. We're not even going to light menorahs or play with dreidels. But it's our foundation. The law brings knowledge of sin. We all could stand to know that a little bit better. The law is not made void. What? The law leads to grace. Actually, Paul said there, we don't make the law void. Yea, rather, we establish it. That's Romans 3.31. The law leads to grace. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. The law is good. These are Paul, the apostle of grace, talking about the law in his giant exposition on how to be justified by faith. And yet while he's saying we're justified by faith, he's also saying the law is good, the law is holy, the law is spiritual. We delight in the law of God. Think about that. We serve the law. We are subject to the law of Christ. Speaking of the golden rule, which every pagan still proclaims, Jesus proclaimed, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All of the Old Testament is summed up by do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And that's called the royal law of love. We're not free from that still. So conclusion, and hopefully... This has taught you something and given you a better understanding, a more solidified understanding. So when you talk to some of your weird, carnal, lawless Christian friends, you can help them not go to hell smelling like a homosexual, but you can help them actually be a real disciple of Jesus Christ. Conclusion, being free from the law does not mean we're free to commit sin, transgress against our neighbor, or worship Buddha. The law is good because it shows us how to live holy and honor God through good works. You know, there's 27 references in the New Testament to maintaining good works. We don't work, like, my, like Dr. Barclay says, we don't work to get saved, we work because we are saved. 
At the same time, we can never be justified before God by means of good works. The atoning work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is the only work necessary for our justification. Our faith in him justifies us and equips us to serve him according to the 800 New Testament commands. So technically, in the New Testament, we are not under the law. However, we are still subject to many, many laws. Amen. Now, I probably read that more than I taught that because I wanted to have my thoughts compiled because this is so doctrinally layered. If I would just try to teach it off my mind, I probably wouldn't do as good a job as if I had compiled my thoughts. So forgive me maybe for reading this more than anything, but hopefully you can go back there and understand things. And now when you go back and read scriptures about being delivered from the law, maybe you'll read and interject there, being delivered from righteousness based on the law. Because it's evident we're still looking to the Old Testament for so many types and shadows and examples. And I'll mind you, you know, the other statement is, well, that's Old Testament, which is always the implication that we don't have to do it. But I always point out, worship is Old Testament. Miracles are Old Testament. Salvation is Old Testament. Grace is Old Testament. Faith is Old Testament. Covenants is Old Testament. The sacrificial lamb of God is Old Testament. That's where we live today. Tongues was prophesied in the Old Testament. The church was prophesied in the Old Testament. Anybody that starts wanting to diminish the Old Testament, rebuke them or correct them. If they won't change, don't fellowship with them. They are jacked up in their head. And you got to figure out where they're getting that from. Because if it's their church, don't go there. It's not a safe place to be. Father, we thank you for this lesson. I thank you, Lord, for helping me teach it and to accurately articulate it. I pray that the, these words, these lessons, these scriptures have helped us in our understanding of the law so that we are not living according to the lawless spirit of Antichrist. Bless all those that listen in the future by Pod School. In Jesus' name, amen.